You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everybody. This is Jackie Lewis, and this is a special mini-series of Love Period, in which we're focusing on Black History Month. Of course, you and I know that Black history is American history, but my guests are going to bring special perspectives about what it means to be Black in America in these days. And I hope you enjoy these conversations. Shaka Senghor, thank you so much for joining me today on Love Period. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to be back and discussing with you. I feel good about that. It was so good to talk with you the other day. It felt like it was the other day. Who knows when it was or when people will hear it. But your new book is out. Um, I said to you in the kind of style of James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates, this book, this Letters to Your Sons, uh, Jay and Sekou. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. That's such high praise to be mentioned amongst those literary titans, uh, especially during Black History Month. So uh, thank you so much for that. Shaka, I've been thinking a lot about Black history and Black future and the particularities, you know, that, that shape us. And I wonder if you would tell my audience a bit about your story that puts you in the place to have this book in the world and why it was so important to write letters to your sons. I'm, I'm so deeply moved by the book. I just wonder if you could talk about that bit. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I mean, I, you know, I have two uh, sons. My oldest son, Jay, is 30 years old. Jay was born six months after I was arrested. And he grew up for 19 years. I was incarcerated. And when I was released, I had another son, Sekou, who's now 10 years old, uh, who I, who lives here with me in L.A. and who I have the wonderful opportunity to raise, you know, in real time. And the way that they inspired the book really just came from the mentoring work I've done over the years where I'm reaching out to different young people throughout the country and just thinking about the narratives around black boys and black men and dads in general and sons in general. And I believe that, you know, this book afforded me the opportunity to really expand the narrative about what it means to be a father during these perilous times. My father was born in Meridian, Mississippi. He's 87 years old. And, you know, I'll see him next week as we're speaking. I'll see him next week. And um, I didn't get to travel for Christmas because of COVID. And my dad left his Christmas tree up, Shaka. So then when I see him in February, we'll have Christmas. I love it. He's a a Mississippi-raised black man. He would say, I'm black, black, you know, uh, who's over my life, shown uh, such humanity, warmth, gentleness, tenderness, vulnerability, but also sometimes his teeth, right? Just sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mad and I'm mad at the world and I'm, I'm a, a lion type dad, you know, really wanting to raise you, protect you. How did your dad shape you? What's the dad in you, Shaka, shaping your boys? That's a great question. You know, my dad is, you know, a really interesting man. 
You know, he grew up, um, you know, he grew up, my dad went to the Air Force when he was 17 years old. And when he got out of Air Force, he met my mother who had three children at the time. And my dad took on the responsibility of raising those three children. And then they had three children, which was myself, my two younger sisters. And, you know, once their marriage dissolved, my dad remarried uh, to my bonus mom. Um, and that came with, you know, three more siblings. So my dad has been instrumental in raising a total of nine siblings. And the way that, that looks is like my dad is like a really thoughtful man. Um, you know, he's, he's really thoughtful. He's the type of man that takes accountability and responsibility serious. And one of the things that I love and respect is that in his less than stellar moments, he was always willing to stand in the truth of those moments and to apologize when necessary and to lean in uh, when needed. And, you know, I think those things definitely have played an impact in my life. I consider myself pretty thoughtful. Uh, I'm a caretaker of many. And a lot of that, you know, even my mentoring work is inspired by my dad. My dad is that that black man in the neighborhood who talks to everybody, uh, you know, all my homies that I grew up with, my siblings grew up with, you know, they all have my father's phone number, you know, so, you know, he's reliable. You know, I think that that characteristic is something that's really important to me as a father. And as I think about, you know, how I'm shaping, the, you know, and influencing my uh, son's lives, you know, I think it's just really about standing in my truth uh, being honest about who I am, about what life is, but also being intentional about nurturing. A lot of times we don't think of dads as anything more than protectors and providers, but the reality is we're also, uh, we're guides, we're life coaches, we're nurturers, you know? So I do all the things that a parent of any gender would do. You know, I cook his meals, I fold his clothes, I tuck him in at night and, and, you know, when I'm by his bedside in those moments when he's not feeling well. And I'm just a dad at the end of the day, you know, I mean, I wear many titles in my public life and in my professional life, but at the end of the day, when I come home or, you know, we're settled in for the day, like I'm just dad, you know, and that's what's really important to me is to create that space where, you know, my son can, you know, receive affection and be affectionate and to just know that my presence is more than just protecting him. It's also to have fun. It's also to, you know, be a partner in whatever adventure he's on. And, you know, I think a lot of that is inspired by my dad. My dad was in the Air Force, too, Shaka. Where, where, where was your dad stationed? So um, he, he was, uh, his main uh, Air Force base was in Michigan at Selfridge um, and, you know, suburb outside of Detroit. We were in uh, Kinchelow. Air Force Base. Yeah, my dad was. St. Marie. Yeah, over the bridge, yeah. My dad was up there as well before, with all that snow. <laughs> oh my God, with snow at the, over your, taller than your house. Snow. Yeah. Yeah. The way you describe your dad, thoughtful, reliable, present. I, I feel the story of black men in America, the, the, I'm going to call it a false story of black men in America, people would be startled. The, the people who construct the false story, who benefit from the false story, um, hyper-masculine, hyper-sexualized, absent, right? 
I know so many dads that sound like your dad, my dad. Why is there a fractured story about Black masculinity in America? And how can we fix that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you actually asked that. You know, I'm often asked, you know, how do we change the narrative around Black men? And, you know, my pushback on it is that we don't have to change the narrative. We really have to expand the narrative to include all of who we are. And, you know, I, I think the reason that the narrative is what it is, because there's been a monetary interest in keeping us kind of locked into these spaces that doesn't threaten, you know, the idea of, of, of America from its historical standpoint. You know, you can't talk about the impact in the story of Black men without talking about the enslavement and the brutalization of Black men during slavery um, as it relates to, you know, this current narrative, you know, where there's prison, which was reintroduced as a new form of free labor through the 13th Amendment, or whether it's the media outlets who push, you know, this kind of criminalization as the only story of who we are uh, in, into pop culture. And so when you get down to it, and I, and I always ask people this, you know, when they start talking about the problems in America, and especially in Black America, they're like, you know, if there was more dads present, and I'm like, you know, where does that narrative come from? And is it true in your own personal life? And most of the time when I, when I talk to people and I say, do you know dads, you know, in your family, in your community? And they're like, yeah, you know, but, and I'm like, there is no but. The reality are, is that we are present in every way possible. And oftentimes in ways that most people uh, or most other dads aren't even remotely close to being uh, present. And so what it what it really boils down to is we have to think more systemically about the problems that exist in our community. Uh, they're not a result of FC dads. They're a result of uh, racist systems that have been put in place that keeps people locked out of opportunities. And, you know, when you think about what that does to a family, you know, we can see it mirrored in our community where there's so many different tips to disempower dads to remove dads from the household, to weaponize children against dads. And so, you know, the other part of it is we're not often telling our own stories. And as long as other people are telling our stories, they'll filter it through, the, through, the, through whatever lens works for them. Yeah. You know, mic drop on that. What do Jay and Seku read? How are they feeling about banned books? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, Jay Jay is an adult now. He's 30 years old. Um, it's rare that we are talking about books or, you know, things of that nature. We have a pretty complex, you know, but very adult relationship. Uh, with Sekou, Sekou's reading everything. You know, he's he's like one of my biggest fans, which is great. Uh, I have to oftentimes kind of edit what he can read from my writing because a lot of times the content is pretty mature. He's only 10 years old. Um, but he has a he has a great library of, you know, African centered books, books that really speak to who he is as a young boy. Um, he's in the fifth grade right now. And this teacher has him reading Malcolm X, which is I mean, he's in the fourth grade. He's reading Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey. And, you know, when, when, I, when I think about banned books, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up. Recently, uh, I received a few messages. You know, my books get banned in prison all the time. And so just this past week, you know, I got rejections from different people for books of mine that were sent in. And 
it really flies in the face of the First Amendment. You know, this this idea that we are pulling literature out of schools that really speaks to the history of America or speaks to things that, you know, makes uh, uh, particularly white political America uncomfortable is really sad. You know, it's like you're trying to sanitize history um, and you just can't do it. You know, like this country is so young in comparison to other countries. And even in this youthfulness, there's this desire to eradicate elements of the past that are true and that the world knows to be true. And so I really think it's a shame. And just especially as a writer, like, you know, every time I get one of those rejections, I think about how sad it is that we're denying people incarcerated an opportunity to read literature that can potentially inspire them to transform their lives. And, you know, it just speaks to how backwards these systems are. It's really true. I'm stunned at some of the books that are being banned. Not the ones I expect even, but, you know, I'm going to call them white bread books, you know, <laughs> like Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> what, what's, what's, what's freakish about that? I feel like we're living a kind of science fiction moment where there's such a powerful urge to squash truth and, and to curate a lie. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think historically that speaks to what, you know, uh, the history of this country has been. You know, um, our whole existence in America was based on a policy that, you know, we were somehow inferior and therefore uh, our only value was being in servitude of white supremacy. And, you know, we still see that play out. We see it play out in corporate America. We see it play out in the media. We see it play out, you know, across so many different areas of interest. You know, you think about the educational system and its failed structures, and typically those failed structures exist within Black communities based on this idea that we're not worthy of anything better than the bare minimums. And so, you know, these bans on literature and this, you know, idea of recreating or reimagining the world that really just doesn't exist, um, you know, it's really sad. And it's, but it's true to what We've known, you know, the system of America to be for many, many years. Not new. Sad, tragic, but not new. Absolutely. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Shaka, you're a writer. And a, and a mentor. If you're curating a list of books or authors that you think every family, I was going to say black family, but every family should have access to to full to more fully understand black history. What are some of the writers or titles that come up for you? Uh, thank you uh, for asking that. So I would I would probably say, uh, you know, Dr. Chancellor Williams, Destruction of Black Civilization, 
uh, Dr. Ben Jacanaz, Black Man of the Now. Um, you know, obviously Malcolm X's autobiography, the autobiography of Asada Shakur, the writings of George Jackson, Soledad Brothers, the letters he exchanged with Angela Davis, I think are brilliant. You know, I think my latest book fits within the scope of like high level informative about the realities of black people in America. And it's one that I really invite and welcome, you know, people from every culture to read because I think it really speaks to the honest experience that we have and not just kind of an idea of what we have. But these are, you know, these letters are through my lived experience. So, you know, those are just some of the books, um, you know, anything that came out of the, the, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, brilliant writers, Gloria Naylor, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, you know, other writers, Maya Angelou, her work is just incredibly inspiring. So I would highly recommend that they read all those. And I think they just banned, I know what a cage bird sings, which is ridiculous. Banned that and the bluest eye. Oh, you, you banned Tony Morrison. That's insane. Um, you can't ban Tony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Where else are you finding resources? I mean, art, uh, film, music. What other kinds of um, resources would you share as to listeners who are thinking? I need to know more, want to know more uh, history, have a, a stronger sense of the Black story and the Black experience in America. Yeah, one of my favorite films, uh, 13th, I think is just a great, um, you know, most of Ava DuVernay's work in general speaks to a lot of the issues we are faced with, you know, but I, I would say 13th is a great film. Um I don't get a chance to watch as much TV. I'm more of a documentary person. Um, but I think, you know, just, there's tons of great documentaries out there, you know, tons of films. You know, obviously, you know, as I mentioned, the 13th is just an incredible film. And even though it focuses on the criminal justice system, I think it speaks more broadly to the history in America. Um, so I think that that's just a great film. And the four-part doc series, I mean, uh, miniseries, that she did on the Exonerated Five, um, you know, I thought that 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 you know show was so important and really speaks to all of the things that we're you know constantly confronted with. Uh, in terms of music, you know, Nas is one of my favorite artists. I think he always has something relevant uh, to to add to the conversation and speaks upon things that you know really helps people understand historically how we got here. I love Nas. I love uh, her movie. When they see us, right? When, when they, they see, see us, us. yeah. Mm -hmm. Let us say the name Anjanu Ellis. Yeah. In that movie, in King Richard, uh, so many beautiful pieces. What are you What are you hoping for, uh, Shaka? As your book finds its way into our consciousness in this year, twenty twenty two, on the way to midterms. What are you hoping our Black stories can add to the American fabric, re redeem the American fabric, change the American fabric? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm, I'm most hopeful for is the expansion of the narrative around who Black men are and how we've contributed uh, to this country, oftentimes without being rewarded uh, for our great contributions. And, you know, I just think that's so important. I think, you know, the expanding of the narrative around our emotional 
commitment to parenting, to fatherhood, to community building, to upliftment. You know, I really want to see a more asset oriented uh, framing of our stories. There's an incredible organization that I've worked with over the years called Be Me Community. And its leader, Travian Shorters, who's a dear friend of mine, um, you know, he always talks about, you know, you can't uplift people if you are identifying them only by their limitations as opposed to their contributions. And that work is so profound and so important. And my hopes is that my book will continue to contribute to that conversation that helps people see uh, the fullness of our humanity, helps people really understand uh, who we are as dads, who we are as community members, as leaders, and you know, even just our everyday mundane existence. Uh, I think it's important for the narrative around us just wanting to be um, and, and, and having that honored in a real way. And I mean, we're seeing it right now in sports, you know, with the NFL and what's going on with the, with the coaches. And it's really tragic. You know, it's tragic to think that, you know, in this day and age in, in a sport that we dominate, um, you know, and we're the most present in, that the leadership roles are vacuous when it comes to black men. So, you know, what, I, what, I, what my hopes are is that we expand the narrative to the point of recognizing that, you know, our, our value, you know, has been proven long before, um, you know, these conversations took place and that when given opportunity, we'll continue to contribute in meaningful ways, but we definitely want to ensure that we are in control of our narratives and our stories uh, because it's that important to the existence of our people and ultimately this country. I've got um, three brothers, four brothers, count those brothers, four brothers and a, and a dad, uh, all black men in America. And I, I look across, my, my brothers are younger than me, uh, three of them, three of the four. And I feel like in some ways I'm like another mother or, you know, comadre to, the, to them. And I watch them navigate these once again tragedies of black male death um, derision, scapegoating, caricatures of black malehood. And I think not for nothing, but all these black men are somebody's baby, Shaka, right? Somebody's mama uh, raised them, somebody's daddy protected them, nurtured them, nurtured them. Uh, cool hand on the forehead when there's a fever, as, as the picture I had in my mind uh, with you and your sons. What do we want to say to younger Black men, uh, younger than, than me, younger than you, maybe, about finding their footing, finding their way? What do you want to say to encourage them? Yeah, you know, my, my words of encouragement, you know, always starts with, you know, be great. You know, be unapologetically great. Never settle for mediocrity when greatness is available. And that greatness is already embedded in your DNA. You know, in 2019, I went to Ghana, uh, took a trip to Ghana where I was spent 13 days. And I remember being in one of the slave dungeons and, you know, standing there on this calcified DNA, you know, which was the, you know, the fluids from our ancestors who were forced to, you know, relieve themselves in that environment, uh, who shed tears in that environment, lost blood in that environment, and it's calcified into the floor. 
And I remember how powerful it was to bend down and touch that floor and know that that DNA coursed through my veins. And I remember, you know, on my way back home thinking about, you know, the resiliency of our ancestors and their ability to, to survive such a horrendous trip uh, to this foreign land. But within that, you know, there's the beauty of, of resilience. There's the beauty of fortitude. There's the beauty of strength and power and magic and all the things that make up who we are. And so what I would say is like, don't let the world tell you that you're incapable of accessing your, your magic, um, that you're incapable of assessing greatness, uh, that you're somehow America's problem to solve or women's problem to solve. And in reality, you are a solution. You've been that for a long time. And so I would just say, continue standing in your purpose, continue to show up in your greatness, continue to rock your crown unapologetically, uh, continue to wear your swagger uh, because the DNA of our ancestors gave birth to that. And don't apologize for taking up space in the world. I know it's, you know, we've been in this space for a long time where, you know, we've had to remain silent. Um, you know, we're seeing the spectacle of uh, our black bodies annihilated, you know, whether it's through police brutality or whether it's through interpersonal gun violence. And that's traumatizing, you know. And so what I would say is ensure that you're checking in with yourself, that you have men in your life that can check in with you. Uh, definitely, if there's an opportunity to explore mental health treatment, I highly encourage that. You know, this world will beat up on you if you don't check in. Um, and, you know, understand that these narratives that have been created have not been created to empower us. They've been created to limit us and keep us locked into the idea that our only value is in our ability to financially provide when the reality is we can contribute so much more and most of what, you know, we can contribute that has infinite, you know, power and value really comes from within. And there's no price you can put on that. That is beautiful, Shaka. Absolutely beautiful. Is there is there a passage from your book that feels to you like a benediction or a blessing or a, a mm. place to end today that you'd like to share like a little bit with us? Because I think we'd like that. I know I'd like it. Let's see what I got. So this is actually from the last chapter. This is a letter to both of my sons. This is, what's, uh, this is what I want you never to know. This feeling that all you're doing is surviving, that your body is not your own, that you can't get love from the men in your life. I want you to flower, to expand, to taste every last drop of what the world has to offer. Yes, you will see overreactions, brutality, and the look on the face of white culture that may one day want to kill you because it's afraid of the imaginary ghost of who you can be. But you will have my love, Sekou, and the love of other men around you. And we will honor you, raise you up, and let you be fully human. This is the best we can do, and we will do our very best every single day, word by word in this book, which I wrote for you and for all the sons of society. In all these letters, I have tried to instill in you both a sense of wonder about the world, a hunger for love, not for violence, and permission to go and seek out the very best of our planet. We spent along upon it for such a brief time. And I don't want you to ever feel the burdens I felt, never know the fear I felt, the sense of dislocation. Black boys and men must forge a new path, one in which tears are cherished, love is paramount, and friendships are real and deep. 
Those in our community who struggle with addiction or abuse or neglect must be covered with healing hands, hands that you willingly reach out to all and any. I lost 20 years to a system that thought I was irredeemable, but somehow through literature and letters and words, I was able to find a way out of the darkness into the light of this past decade. I don't claim that it's been easy, not that every day is a dream, but my boys, my boys, when I think of your faces, hear your voices, and see your strong and beautiful bodies walk across this earth, I am reminded of the elemental perfection of nature, the magnitude of my good fortune, and the mere chance, one in billions, that I survived, that we came together for this fleeting span. Isn't that enough? Let us make it enough. Every second that we breathe is shared in magical air. Dad. Oh, beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Sean. Thank you, you for inviting me and for having me. I'm truly honored to be here. Thank you so much. Let me ask you just two quick uh, ending questions that we try to do. What do you know for sure about love? What do you know for sure about love? What I know for sure about love is it truly is um, the most incredible healing, nurturing, and inspiring emotion we can have is truly our power. And in most cases, is our superpower. Superpower, yes. And when I say fierce love, what comes up? Fierce love. When I think of fierce love, I think of passion. You know, I think of the ability to lean in uh, when things are difficult. I think of the ability to lift up, you know, to higher heights when things are promising. You know, I think of the energy of just showing up every day. You know, I think of the smiles and the hugs and the laughter and the joy in which we exist, even in these very complex times. And I think the extending of our hand to reach out to our fellow human being, um, you know, especially at times like this when everything in the world, you know, is challenging, uh, just that willingness to reach out and say, hey, I got you. Uh, to me, that's what I think of when I think of fierce love. Shaka Sengler, bless you. Uh, bless you. Fierce love to you. <laughs> you as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Love Period, a special series we put together for Black History Month. As an African-American woman who grew up in this nation, I think about the poet James Weldon Johnson, who says about my people, we have come over a way that with tears has been watered. I think about the tears of my ancestors, watering the soil of America, tears baptizing my hope, tears that are often tears of joy because we've learned how to make a way out of no way. Black history, Black heritage, it's everyone's history. These stories belong to all of us. And I hope because you've listened to these episodes, you feel connected and that you'll dig and do some research about Black folks in America.